Hi, and welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. I didn't discover the artist in me until I was in my 40s. In this podcast, I look beyond the easels, the sketchbooks, and the iPads to discover what it means to be an artist. Join me as I speak to other creators about their journey, as well as reflecting on my own work and experiences. Episode 73, Pencils, Polygons, and Sculpting in 3D with Glenn Southern. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. So I'm going to keep this uh, kind of update short so we can get right into that interview. So I wanted to thank a new Patreon supporter, and that is Ricky. Thank you for becoming a supporter of this podcast and my work. I appreciate that very much. If you would like to become a supporter of the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash mikehendley. There's also a link from my site at mikehendley.com as well as drawinginspiration.fm. So how else can you support the podcast? Well, you can listen, (laughs) subscribe, and share. That's it. Uh, I appreciate you getting the word out and sharing this podcast with others. It's an opportunity to hang out every couple of weeks and I can share my creative journey, some of the things I've learned, and also get into the minds of these other creatives and share those experiences with you as well. So I appreciate you coming back every couple of weeks and listening to a new episode. So I appreciate all of you and all of your support. So do you know somebody who you think would be an awesome guest for the show? If you do, if you go to drawinginspiration.fm, there's a little form that you can fill out or you can email me directly and you can let me know of an artist Uh, that you think would be a fantastic guest, somebody with an interesting story, a technique, something we can learn from, or maybe you're that guest, and maybe you think this is an opportunity to be able to share some of what you've done. So if so, just reach out to me. I'm always looking at uh, new opportunities, new journeys, new people to speak to. So uh, once again, just go to drawinginspiration.fm, and you can find the form there, uh, submit it, and I will get back to you. Thank you. So the last little bit I'll talk about are just these live uh, draws that I've been doing on Instagram every Sunday at 1 Eastern. So these have been really great. It's been an opportunity to connect with with listeners and other creatives and uh, just hang out. I play some kind of chill tunes in the background. I usually pick an animal that I share the day before. So I provide a link to the reference photo. And I usually at that point also outline how I'm going to draw it. So I've done it in uh, in gouache, uh, graphite. I've just did this past week in, in Procreate uh, using my iPad. I'll be doing colored pencil and probably acrylic as well. So it's an opportunity to kind of try different mediums. So the whole point in this is that we're just sitting and creating. It is not a course. It is not a tutorial. I'm providing a reference. If you want to use your own, if you're working on a piece already, it's a chance for us to chill out for about an hour, an hour and a half. And uh, I take questions. I talk about what I'm doing. If you want to share your experiences, you can do that through the chat as well. And so uh, since the last podcast, I did a Bluebird. Uh, I did a quick graphite piece, but then I did it in, in gouache live as part of this event and I did it on black watercolor paper so I wanted to kind of showcase something that maybe people haven't seen before and using black watercolor paper and that was a lot of fun and to see everybody's work I mean that's what really is is so exciting is people do this and they will share their work either later that day in the next one two three four days whenever they get to it 
and then I'm able to share it with everyone else. So I just love the fact that people are are coming to this every Sunday and doing something and then sharing it. I just, it's just incredible. And so I did a bluebird a couple of weeks ago, and then uh, this past weekend I decided to do a uh, raccoon. So I was using Procreate with my iPad Pro, and I had it sitting in my sketchboard uh, Pro, which is kind of like a drawing board that you sit on top of your desk that kind of in- surrounds the iPad and holds it in place and gives you a lot of room to move your arm around. It was nice to be able to do some work in Procreate. I haven't spent as much time with Procreate in the last month or so than I have in the past, but after doing this event, I'm thinking I got to get back to it again because I use it for different activities, not necessarily the kind of work I did with the raccoon and kind of exploring ideas and things like that. So it was great to be able to go through that. I answered some questions. I got some questions afterwards as well that I um, I addressed as a matter of the functionality of, of Procreate as well. So I will be doing some more Procreate in the future for these Sunday Live Draws. I think the next one will be uh, Back to Pencil. I'm always going to fall back to pencil. I just love graphite. It's, it is what it is. <laughs> so I'll be doing that probably uh, the next weekend, and then maybe we'll try colored pencil. Uh, But once again, I'm not expecting everyone to use the same tools I am. I'm just trying to expose all the mediums that I've played with, and maybe new ones I haven't even touched yet, and it's an opportunity for us to kind of explore and chat and hang out. So if you're available Sundays at 1 p.m. Eastern, I encourage you to drop into Instagram. I'm probably going to be considering going to YouTube in the future, but if I do that, I will be sure and still post it on Instagram, just telling you that that's where it's going to be. So the easiest way to follow this is to do it on Instagram. I do share this on Twitter as well. So if you're not on Instagram, you'll see the notification there on Twitter if you follow me there. And if I decide to do this on YouTube, I'll post in both places. The reason I'm thinking about YouTube is because it has that nice wide format. I can leverage two or three cameras if I choose to. The chat is still there. And it just allows me to pull some of my stuff out of Instagram. I don't like everything being in Instagram. And I think YouTube may be more accessible for those creatives that don't spend as much time on Instagram. So that's why I'm thinking of YouTube in the future. So anyways, I I hope to see you there. And I hope that uh, you'll keep creating and keep making stuff. And if you feel like you've been inspired by the podcast, by either myself or one of the artists that I've had on here, just tag me. I'd love to see your work. I mean, it's I love doing this. I love my journey, but I really, really want to hear about yours and I want to see your work. So please keep sharing and please keep creating. And um, I'm sure that uh, we're going to be in a much better place in a year from now, in two years from now, and, and we can continue to to grow and take this journey together. So with that, let's head into the interview this week. My guest appeared on my radar last year when Procreate decided to roll out the ability to paint on 3D objects created in apps like Nomad on the iPad. I decided to chase down some videos on YouTube and found an artist in the UK posting some amazing work. As I dove deeper into his channel, I found videos covering all areas of sculpting in 3D, from mobile to desktop. My guest has worked for 20 years in 3D modeling and motion graphics in the entertainment industry, as well as many others. He has recently created a series of courses to complement the in-person training he has done around the world. Although heavily focused on 3D and digital work, he still reaches out for his sketchbook and pencil or pen on a daily basis. To talk about his creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Glenn Southern. 
Hi, Glenn. How are you? Hello. Hello. Hello from England. <laughs> it's uh, so great to connect with you. I, um, you know, I discovered you, I think, through YouTube when I was uh, playing with the new version of Procreate that supports 3D. And then I started realizing there was Nomad Sculpt and all these other tools on my iPad. And I started thinking about, oh, I could make, you know, virtual maquettes for some of the drawings I do analog. And then I found your tutorials and I'm like, this guy is just magic <laughs> with your ability to present and I would. <laughs> <laughs> and the content you cover and, you know, you're just getting into the nitty gritty and it's current. Um, I really enjoyed that. So I just wanted to thank you for doing those tutorials because I know we appreciate YouTube University and having really good content. And thank you for putting it there. Well, hell, YouTube. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm relatively new to YouTube, but, but I'll explain some of that during the podcast. Okay. That, that'd be awesome. So um, I wanted to like, and and so for the person listening, this is going to be a bit different because we're delving into um, a lot of pixels and polygons uh, versus uh, pens and inks and pencils. And but I, I want to talk about both, and I think this is going to be really interesting for people who have an iPad and want to leverage it further, or have an Oculus and want to do something fun with it. So. But I wanted to kind of go back to where you started and wondering where you came from with regard to creativity. And when you were a kid, were you a creative kid? Was this part of something that stuck with you since uh, since you were quite young? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I um, I mean, I'm from a very analog background. Um, you talk about pen and pencils um, and paint. I, I, I'm an analog artist still to this very day. I still use a moleskin every day. I still draw every day with a pen. You know, I take pride in my pencils and, you know, you know, you know, it goes all the way back. Uh, and if we didn't have digital, I would just be quite happy getting on with my analog um, tools. Uh, so, so that, you know, that I just thought I'd preface what I'm about <laughs> to say with that. Really. Um, but my, my creative kind of um, world really was, I, I grew up in a family where n none of them were professional artists, but... Uh, my mum is uh, was she's passed now um, was very very strong with pencil so she was sketching in the 40s and 50s and I still have all of her artwork so I learned a lot from her um, and she was very good with charcoal and watercolor my dad um, the same really not not as much but he was much more of a graphic style so he did a lot of that for a hobby and he was also um, something that I only really it came back to me a lot later in life. He was a, a, a plasticine sculptor as well, so he used to make little plasticine heads, but not not just more for you know not little you know like silly little characters. He used to actually sculpt heads that were recognisable features anatomically correct, and he'd like lay them around the house, which I'd forgotten all about really. You, you know, once I became a sculptor, I should have really remembered that. <laughs> Um, so so it goes back, um, and I'm and I'm the th I'm the third of three kids, and I'm the youngest. So my family are a lot. Obviously, I'm 50, I'm mid fifties, so they're all mum and dad are past, but I've I've got um, sister and a brother, and they are both creative. My brother's a designer, steelwork designer, uh, and my sister, although she's re she's actually retired now, she's super creative with with more like craft stuff. So she's a, a seamstress, and she makes. She makes medieval armor now, and she, she she's just crazy talented. So I, I was surrounded with all that, um, all of my life really. So it was always I always wanted to be some form of artist, but you know, the, 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 I'll explain how that went. Um, and then I wasn't that good, um, or I wasn't that dedicated till about thirteen or fourteen. So I'm, you know, I do have a lot of artwork from earlier than that, but I, I I'm very very heavily into nature. 
So I always thought I would be a biologist or a botanist or I was going to be a park ranger at one point mixed in with the fact that I liked art. So I thought the two might go hand in hand um, at one at some point. But I went to school and I loved school, absolutely loved it. But um, academically, I was too busy having fun. <laughs> so academically, I was terrible. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't sit still. I don't know whether they would say I had ADHD or something now, but I was, I was a nightmare for sitting still. I was always out. I was always looking at birds in terms of like, you know, binoculars birds. I was trying to get out in the wildlife, trying to, trying to get out of the classroom kind of environment. And I went through a lot of, never had any problems. I was never a bad kid at all. I was always, I was always big for my age and wasn't sporty. So I played rugby in, in the UK, but, but not to any kind of standard. So that all led me to like I had shocking results in my exams, so so I did get an R O level as we we had in the UK, but um, I wasn't any good at all, and I just didn't know how to go to even college, let alone university. So I just started. Um, I just took a, any course I could do, and I left at fifteen, so I was out in the world at fifteen. So it was a few months before my sixteenth birthday. And I got on a little um, a scheme that they had in the UK working for. Um, it was for a company that was doing like um, stop motion. So I was doing like little clay puppets uh, and learning a little bit about darkroom techniques for shooting. Um, so bear in mind, this is mid eighties. So no digital whatsoever in terms of cameras. Um, um, and the stop motion was actually clay. It wasn't any kind of, you know, it wasn't silicon or anything that I started playing with, with later. Um, so, so I did that for a while months not not long and then realized definitely this is me i've definitely got something here that, that you know this is what i want so i went into i ex i went from that to a uh, my brother as i say was a steelwork designer so i went into a steelworks in the print department with the idea of becoming a draftsman um which was far too um staid and boring for me at that time but i thought it's it's a quite you know it will get me qualifications while i'm in there don't need to go to uni um and the good thing about that, I look back now, I've, I've, I've said this recently to someone, I look back and it, it taught me something that stuck with me a long time, which is the print side of things. So I was handling a lot of big print machines, I was helping in, in the print department and I was learning about colour separation and learning layout and even typesetting. So I ended up buying what was called an Adana 8x5, which is a little typeset press. Mm. So based on what I was doing at work, I went and bought that and then started making little card sets and learning a bit about that, really. So that got me up to about 18, and it also got me a bit of money. So I was, I was earning for my age group. I, everyone else was going to college and uni, but I had a ton of money. So 18 stroke 19, I bought a house, um, wow. which is just unheard of in the, you know, it was, it was 15 grand for the whole house. <laughs> like back then I was, I mean, I don't even, I can't remember what I was earning. Um, but yeah, started my life that way and got um, got into the, the the adult side of things really quickly. I was I was like a a, a mortgage at nineteen. Um, all the bills were coming in. I'd left home, obviously. So that that went quite well from an art point of view. At that point, I was working on play by mail games. I was illustrating magazines. I was doing um, comic work, but nothing nothing big, nothing fancy. Um, did a couple of published games that went well, but again, going really well. But once you get a mortgage, and anyone who's got a mortgage will know, you know, you've got to constantly pay that every month. So I just hit a wall where I got made redundant from that job, which that, that company was 125 years old. 
and they folded in my tenure. I was, you know, I was, I was the junior in there, and they went under, um, which was like heartbreaking, really. So that leapt me on, really, for, and that's that's what started my career. Is that I, I then went into business and and uh, kind of left the art world behind a little bit and got some skills. And that's you know we'll we'll talk more about that. But what I learned after that was more about uh, I went into I did a little bit of logistics and went into a re- like and then into retail did really well oddly in that and then became worked worked in a retail environment where I became a manager in my early 20s but then was moved then moved to London or got was sent to London and then realized I could people would do what I wanted really well I've got very much um a carrot approach to management I learned how to manage people motivate people I was training people and all of that got me I, I always knew I would go back to the art w- world at some point but I was building up these soft skills and now I look back I couldn't have asked for better I, I literally the things I do now the presenting the teaching the motivating the handling things when they go wrong bringing things back from the brink all of that is what you learn in a real business um, and it's 50% of my job now 50% is art 50% is all of the, the, the other stuff um, and you, you it's very hard to teach people that um, baptism of fire some people call it don't they? yeah I would agree that the business side of being an artist is something that we need to maybe spend more time with, um, that we need to talk to others about. When you were going through that and when you were uh, working on retail, were you still drawing and creating? Was it still something you were doing off to the side? All the time. And and that, that leads me on to um, what happened with my career because we, we get into the 90s now. Uh, and, and actually, I, I was always... Even, even so, I was I was promoted to a manager. I was earning good money. I was, you know, a big car for for my age group. I mean, I was, uh, you know, eventually I was flying around the country doing like regional roles before I left. Um, so I, I I had to hide almost my artistic career because you can't have both. You you literally I couldn't have let people know how invested I was with my art. I wasn't just an artist. I was actually making money still, um, and I had some nice you know some nice uh, projects that, that that I did even back all the way back then some nice game projects came along I had an Amiga 1200 so nice. I, I'd learned you know this is 91 now 92 uh, you know I'm, I'm using 3D Studio Max on a on a DX266 you know I'm 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 just at the start so if you think anyone who, who uses 3D Studio now I started in in 1991 with with a with a, a set of discs from my brother and it wasn't even 3D Studio Max. It was by a company called Kinetics back then. It was 3D, 3DS, I think it was called. So that was my introduction to 3D. So I'm right from the beginning, literally. You know, unless you go back to Silicon, silicon Graphics and the stuff yep. that the, the late 80s, I, I was there, you know, making stuff. Uh, and I still have the artwork somewhere. Um, painting in deluxe paint on an Amiga with 64 colors. I was using a light pen that was like a pen with a box on the end of it on a wire. Um, all of that was was just like, wow, here we go. You know, we have now got the capability to move this into a into a computer. You know. Yeah, it's. Uh, I worked in uh, the internet and computer industry in the in the mid, well, maybe ninety three, ninety four. And I remember the company we worked with uh, dealt with the SGI boxes, and they were the most beautiful computers, in the bluish purple. Like they were just beautiful yeah. machines and i played with 3d studio um at the time and uh then later maya but really never did much in it it was just more that i just was tinkering but it's cool to be at the, yeah, front, I did more, at the beginning of that right 
right at the yeah. start yeah yeah and then obviously we had you know we had jurassic world in 93 we had toy story we you know it all began then and it, you know that that for me i teach a lot of the history of, of that stuff because i enjoy the fact that i was there you know not in not in hollywood or not in not in in silicon valley or anything like that but it, you know it was growing everywhere in the world and i was working for companies in doing little projects in japan with, with automotive companies and I, you know I still i can still find stuff online that i did um, in the mid '90s, you know, a, a company in America called Powwow, which was b- before Facebook or any of them, they had a messaging service, and it was a, a group of Native Americans that had got got a ton of money, and they were they wanted to promote this messaging service that got and my artwork's still out there. They contacted me a few months ago actually and said, "Do you remember doing this for us?" And it's just like it's just so good to look back that far because. You know, you, you think of it being quite a new industry, um, and it is. It's still the Wild West all the time in, in terms of digital creatives, but it's a lot more stable now, and it's a lot more, you know, it's a lot more predictable than than it was when I when I was first started. That's awesome. So you've been through all of this. Uh, did you? So you transitioned at one point to start your own business, or did you do something before that? Like, so how did you transition into? Um... Well, I actually kept. A, so I had a. I, I was. I was actually selling art all of that time so i had a separate an accountant and a separate business all that time um but it wasn't huge i kept it really well suppressed um and i you know i just i just it it got to be a problem then um probably around i'm trying to think probably mid 90s when i started so so at at that point i had relationships with companies that were that were starting to make software so they were using me on magazine covers and I was doing mix of 2D and 3D art, uh, and 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 obviously Photoshop came along when I could afford it. I had, you know, my first photo, my first machine had four meg of RAM, and Photoshop needed eight meg of RAM. So that's meg. If anyone's <laughs> listening, who doesn't get it, I couldn't afford the four meg. So I could, I only had, I had to use one called Paint Shop that that would run in four meg. So I couldn't afford. Um, to, to get that at that point so you know that was that was quite limiting well not limiting but it was it would have been more professional if i'd if, I, if I'd have got that but but by then i was thinking i could do a lot more and i was look i was i was into maya by 95 maya's power animator i think it was called and lightwave was my dream because i could model anything back then i could i could you know i could polygon model i could box model um no sculpting as such but it was all it was all box modeling like you know and and something called um metanerbs and where we you know what what we now call subdivision modeling um wasn't firmly established until 95 or 97 actually which was jerry's game with pixar so it was something called Maya artisan tools and there was there's ways to manipulate geometry that wasn't just boxy but it wasn't brilliant and it was it was hard going um and unless you had silicon graphics machines and 20 30 thousand pound pieces of equipment you couldn't do it you know like that you know and a lot of stuff was done with nerves so like spline based so toy story one was all spline based so how the heck they did that i just do not know you know everything we do is polygons not splines so they did toy story one with with textured animated splines which is just still blows my mind today um so yeah it was changing then by by the mid 90s we were you know i was ready for the next big thing which is what i'll talk about in a minute which was zbrush which is <laughs> came along after yeah that. i remember reading creativity inc where they talk about kind of the history 
and uh, yeah, it's 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 a well done book. I would recommend if you're interested in kind of the history of Pixar. It's worth it's worth checking out for sure. I've read it. I've, I've it's I've I've got a list of about ten titles I'll share okay. with you that that, that okay. I I I got because I teach a lot of it. I obviously look for uh, anything that Catmull does, Edwin Catmull, uh, anything that Jobs wrote about creativity. Um, obviously, the, the history of Disney is crucial to me to you know to understand what they did, and obviously the the history of um, SKG and how that came about with the break. I I I am quite close to all of that because a lot of either students or you know companies sometimes like to know where where stuff com- came from, you know, and especially with the history of algorithms. So if you look at what Catmull was doing in the seventies with with you know the, the the film that followed Westworld, so Future World. He did the he did the hands that he animated in wireframe by actually hand coding it, and that became you know his papers on that became something, and then everybody you know that that industry started to grow, and that became what he did for Lucasfilm, and that's what became Pixar. So when you understand all of that legacy, and you read those you know that title that you're talking about, and the, you know and, and quite a few similar sort of books. It really makes you understand that you know you're on the shoulders of very few giants. That there weren't many people that were doing that. You, you know, you had the likes of Lasseter that came along with Pixar. You know, the creative side, but who built all this stuff underneath it is you know how you know he was standing on the shoulders of giants in the, in the late '80s, early '90s, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. So I love, absolutely love it. You know, it's it's a passion for me. It's you know as much as that cell animation is, I'm not very you know I don't know a lot about the history of that other than the stuff you would get on the you know DVD extras. But in terms of software development, you know I, I I'm very close to that, and I still I'm still learning today. So you know you you mentioned ZBrush. I, I think I want to talk through this to get to the point where because I think we're at a, a really exciting point in time where the tools have become accessible. The software, the hardware via the iPad, um, or just using a mouse on your computer. But, you know, the the iPad, I think, has been huge with respect to a lot of this. And ZBrush seems like it was a step in that direction, this idea of, of opening the opportunity of doing 3D work to anyone, right? Um, and you were there at the beginning of ZBrush, which is, is it only, like, to this day, is it is it Windows and Mac, or is it just a Windows? Uh, Windows and Mac, Win- yeah, no Linux, okay. though. Um, and you're still working in ZBrush, like it is still every yeah, day. Every day. <laughs> every day. It's my, it's my main tool, without a doubt. It's you know I make my living off it. Um, when we start talking about mobile later on, you know people don't even know that I'm that in, steeped in in ZBrush. Um, but I, I literally couldn't do my job without it. It's it's a production tool. Um, everything else is is close. Um, that's what that's the best way to describe it. Blender is amazing. It's coming through, but can't handle the high-end polygon counts. Um, you, you know, Nomad that we're going to talk about with the iPad is great, but it doesn't have the full production tech tools. So there's lots of you know we are getting there. That you know it is evolving, and, and we will get there. The, the, the M1 is a revolution of it. The M1 chip in the iPad is insane. Uh, uh, you know, if you do bench tests on it, it's incredible. It's one of the reasons I. I I support it so much and and promote it because it's it is a desktop in your hands. It's it's incredible. But yeah, ZBrush started it all for me in '99. That that was my that was what cemented my um, from '99. I'd said right, I'm going to start a company, and it took me a good few years to get financially set up and get you know my wife had to. She was about she's a HR exec, so we wanted to make sure that 
always there was one of us who was stable financially. You know, we, we never leapt both of us at the same time. So I had to wait a good few years, and then you know I was recording videos in the in the mid '90s uh, that, that became I was selling ZBrush video. I was the first person on Amazon to sell a ZBrush video, and it was terrible. I have to admit, it was absolutely <laughs> terrible. Um, but there was nothing online really to speak of. You know the, the the stuff that was online. You know YouTube had only you know I think YouTube was uh, 2000, 2000, I think something like that. Uh, it must be around that because I did I did some work for them on the 10th anniversary, which was 2010. So, you know, YouTube, if you think about a world without face, without any of the social media whatsoever, and without YouTube, it's just incredible that, that, that you know how far we've changed. Not, not all for the best, you know. I've, I do have some thoughts on 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 that side of things, but you know, from a software point of view, it's just incredible where we've come. So, is ZBrush like it's understanding? I think the output here, like if I wanted to create something that I wanted to share as an NFT or if I wanted to create something that I wanted to create a digital maquette or something like that. I may consider one group of tools versus another. Like what, you know, understanding that some people listening to this may have never heard of any of the software that we're talking about. How would you explain ZBrush um, as a tool and what it's capable of doing? And then maybe bounce that off of Blender, which I think is beginning is getting a little bit more press. People are talking about it, but maybe if you can speak to at a very high level, what does ZBrush allow you to do? Okay, so so ZBrush is a sculpting package. So if you think of sculpting in the real world, you take a piece of clay, you mush it around, you you end up with whatever you end up with with your skill level. If you're in, if you're going back in history, that would become a like you then scan it. And then that would go into a film. That, that's how a lot of films, um, sort of like 90 um, through to 2000, there's a lot of companies that were scanning what they make and then that becomes a digital asset. Um, prior to that, obviously, we, we had stop motion, which, you know, for, for sort of like 80 years or whatever it was, um, back into the Harryhausen days, which obviously influenced, influenced us all. Now, ZBrush came into a world... Um, so I started in 99 using it, uh, and it was not established at all. It was a company, there was a chap called Offer Al, and he started it after he left Sega. Started it in about 96, 97, I think, and I, I, I sort of like jumped in a couple of years after that. So he was making something that would allow you to manipulate geometry to make it feel like sculpting. And that's, in essence, what it still is. So if you go to, um, so one of your questions then, can you make NFTs? Well, you in, in ZBrush, you can make geometry, you can then sculpt on that geometry, and you can then paint that geometry, and you can export that geometry to wherever you want. Where it generally goes is three ways, really. So you could, you could say, uh, you could split it like this, it could go into an animation pipeline, so that would be where you would go and get really good geometry underneath to make it animatable. But then you could capture all of the high resolution detail. And when I say animation, that's TV, film, game, especially game. They're different areas, but they all need to be animated. So you would start it mostly in ZBrush. Most, most production people would, you know, you'd get concept art, then you'd move to ZBrush, then you'd move it into an animation package. Or you could go down the second line, which is for output to a physical. So that's 3D print, 3D routing. So I work on, I've worked on shows like Penny Dreadful, which is great big horror production. Season two, they've got to make a castle. So I'd sculpt it in ZBrush, and it would be output in 2.4 meter polyfoam blocks coming from the ZBrush file. Or you could 3D print it. You know, you could get it into any kind of um, 
any of the printers that we've all we've all got now, um, or go into a you know go into a bureau, send your files there. That happens. A, a lot of companies do that. And then the third one is is the other stuff. So the, this you know you, you're talking about the experiential stuff that you were just like the the NFTs, creating things for another end. You know, not necessarily that's going to be animated, not necessarily that's going to be output, but for for another another you know. I mean NFTs are relatively new, but you know, there were you know things for uh, augmented reality and, and things like that. It gives you geometry, sculpting, and painting at the highest level. Um, the painting isn't the best in the industry now because we've got things like Adobe Substance, um, painter and designer. We've got Mari, which has been around for quite a long time. We've got 3D Coat. There's lots of other software that you can paint on things, um, but ZBrush is a great start. So if you feed those other programs with something that you've already painted and done UV maps, which are the coordinates we use to apply a texture to a model, a lot of that can be done in ZBrush. Now, your question about Blender, Blender's been around for, for, for 21 years as well. It's been around a long time. It's free, which is unheard of in the industry. So it's, set, it's created its own model, business model. A lot of people struggled with it until version 2.8 came along and then it went very mainstream. All of the controls became very similar to Maya and Cinema 4D and like like a very, very generic set of tools then. It changed to become very standardized. From that point, I, I started looking at it because I, I couldn't look away anymore. You know, I, I was quite a snob. I, you know, I thought I'll stick with my, you know, mainly for film Maya, mainly for TV, Cinema 4D, uh, and lots of other ones around that. Obviously Photoshop, Illustrator, all the other, the two-dimensional packages that we all we all still need to use. But then Blender's not quite got there for me with the sculpting, and a lot of people who do what I do, production-level sculpting, I need, I need multi, multi-millions. I, I might have a file that will have... I mean, I'm working on one today. I'll give you an idea. It will have something like 150 models in it, and some of those models need to be a million polygons. So they're all in one file. So we're talking gigs and gigs and gigs of data in one file. Um, and Blender can't handle that. Uh, it just it just isn't capable. Even with machines with 128 gig of RAM or more in you know high-powered graphics cards, Blender just just can't get the sculpting part of it can't cope with that level you know once you go into production it you can use it for rigging you can use it for lighting rendering it's fantastic in lots of ways and it's free um they just they, they're not at the point yet where they haven't rewritten the sculpting uh, module yet but when they do that will be a huge competitor for zbrush and, and, and there's other programs as as i've said 3d coat has a sculpting arm every major animation package now has a sculpting tool in it so since 2016 maya got a set of tools and they autodesk that, that own that they used to have a program called mudbox which was very very similar in in capability to zbrush but they they kind of they let it go by the wayside a little bit and i adopted the tools into maya cinema 4d you can sculpt in modo which is another one we haven't talked about there's lot, lots of these companies added a a way to sculpt because it's such an accepted way of creating organic stuff now. It's just that ZBrush is still the big boy. It's still the big daddy. So I think that's, um, that, that leads to kind of my next question is understanding that there is, when you're dealing with organic and being able to, to pinch and pull and stretch and all that, um, that's a sur- kind of certain tool set. If you're looking to design something with close tolerances that have exact dimensions, you would probably be looking at different tools than what you suggested, right? 
Uh, yeah, that, so so we haven't mentioned those at all. So so of the types of modelling that are around, um, the, the the way we normally describe it is we've got what I've just described, which is sculpting, but that's basically high polygon. So that that's still just manipulating polygons, but what they're doing is they 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 give you a lot. So when you haven't got a lot and you're just moving in them by points and edges and faces, that's usually called box modeling or or just polygon modeling. That's a very that's how we were doing it since the day its polygons were you know became a thing really. That that's how we started it. Sculpting was added onto that, and then the one that I'm just that you were just describing is what we call CAD based. So that's that's computer aided design, which obviously it's all computers, but. CAD is when we're using things called NURBs, which are, are splines that we uh, you, you manipulate the splines to make a surface, and it and overall it uses a lot less um, CPU. So so you're describing the spline or the surface between the splines in a different way. So it, it, it if you're making cars uh, and most automotive, they use those kind of packages. And you've got packages like Autodesk, um, uh, AutoCAD for or for for things like uh, architecture and and you know like like I said about my brother's steelwork design. You've got things like Fusion 360, which is a very organic way of making parts. But it, but again, it is still so. If you're making a car, you'd make it in Fusion 360 or making a boat you'd use rhino you know there's some very set things for set jobs even though they all do quite similar things mm -hmm. if you're in the boat building industry you probably use rhino or rhinoceros 3d um started in seattle started in the boat building community you know it's and it's it, every jeweler in the world who does 3d now uses rhino it's a you know, there's just certain software that's right for certain jobs. My industry or the media and entertainment industry doesn't really use CAD as much as polygons. You know, most films aren't made with NURBs or splines. They're generally made with polygons as, as a rule. I mean, I'm generalizing right. here, but that, that's generally what, you know. And the other one, obviously, you've got you've got pixels you've got you know you've got 2d so that that's you know all of our you know rat you've got two types of that haven't you you've got vector and, and raster so you've got bitmap for things like photoshop and painter and um rebel rebel 5 and all of those can rage art rage and then you've got the vector stuff so you've got like the illustrator stuff so yeah lot, lots of little separations of you know you, ha you have to be when you're trying to teach youngsters to say, right, you know, you want to go, I want to, I want to design on a computer, and you, and you know, I talk all that language, and they're like, oh my god, but you need to learn it. You need to understand what is the difference between 2D and 3D, and that isn't easy because of, I mean, I've just listed three minutes worth of tools there, and it, it can be quite confusing for someone. They, you know, youngsters generally don't know what they don't know. They, you know, it's like a rump cell thing. They, they don't even know what's out there yet. Mm -hmm. So they can't know if they like it because they don't know it exists. If you, when I show somebody v sculpting in VR, they're like, "I didn't even know this was a thing," and then suddenly they want to be a sculptor, um, which is great. Which is, you know, well, that's what it's all about, isn't it? And and absolutely, I think where I want to now take this is for the listener right now who maybe has not done three D or some limited three D, um, and and they're thinking about how do I get into this. I know the next question may be, well, what tools do you have in front of you? Do you have an Oculus Quest? Do you have an iPad? Do you have a, a computer? But let's assume they have a computer. What what path would you give these people who want to explore it, um, do, do want, want to be able to throw a, a, a digital piece of clay in front of them and start massaging it and creating something from it? What, what app would you recommend? 
So the, the, there's a few different paths that you can start and, and, it's, and it's part of what I've been doing in the last few years. So we'll, we'll move on to iPad in a minute because that's my, that's my current big, big baby at the moment. Mm -hmm. If you've just if you've got your, your computer or your your, your dad or your mum's computer or you you know if you, if you've got access to a PC say or a Mac, they're very similar in terms of what you know almost every tool is on both uh, to to some degree. You can literally start with Blender on either of those and it's a hundred percent free and you can do nearly everything I've just described. And the things like you know just just diving in and doing some sculpting, you can do that with a mouse if you like. Um, it, the reason we don't say for sculpting to use a mouse is because a mouse is almost analog. It's either on or off. You're clicking for something. What you generally uh, want is some form of a pressure sensitive device. So we, we you know, I, I use Wacom devices and Sense Labs devices, and they're basically a pen that we draw on to, to you know. So, so, so there you're looking at a little. You know, you can't just dive in without one of them if you want to get to the point where you're drawing. You know, some people do. Some people do really well with it. Some very high end artists do. Um, and if you're just coloring, it's not a problem. It's if you're really trying to draw. So Blender's a great start. You can get some free ones like. Um, some good examples, free sculpting, ZBrush does a free version, so you can just dive in and get, a, it's called ZBrush Core Mini, that's free, uh, and it gives you a flavour of what that sculpting is like. And then you can, you know, if you're a student, you can get almost anything free. Now, if you look at what a student can get, Maya is free. I'm just trying to think what, what you can and can't get. Or almost everything via a university or college you can get you can get access to. But... There are lots of tools that are, you know, completely free and just as good as the as the paid version. So for Photoshop, I always advise Critter, which is an amazing 2D. It just if you learn Critter, it's free, it's stable, open source, and you can move up to Photoshop when you can afford it. If you want to sculpt, the ones I've already mentioned, you know, I've already said, and Fusion 360, even if you want to go into CAD, that's free. So I, I like to say to people, Blender's a good start. Um, unless you've got an iPad. And then if you've got an iPad, the world has now moved completely because with an iPad and an Apple Pencil, which if you look at the stats, you know, a lot of houses have got an iPad. And if you want to think Samsung and Android, I, you can say the same thing because the, the sculpting packages like Nomad, the one we're going to talk about, Nomad Sculpt, are on both Android and um, Apple. So now... I'm quite confident to say that, you know, you, you, I can teach people to sculpt on an iPad and I've got examples, I've got live examples of, of people who have started and never done anything other than the iPad who are now moving into ZBrush and production work, um, which is only in a matter of two years that's happened, not even that, 18 months. Um, so you can take an iPad, obviously you can paint on it, draw on it, do all of the things that you would want to do on, on your desktop, but you can now sculpt at a level that, you know, I use it in production, so I use it on TV shows. I, I do concept art that, that, at fairly high level, um, and, and lots of people are using it, um, uh, you know, for that for that reason. So that that's my recommendation. I've given you a big list there of, 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 of software, and, and the, the, the hardware is is incredible now. It's just it's literally incredible that we can do that on an iPad. Even the older generation iPad, even your iPhone you can sculpt on now. It's mind-blowing. I think, uh, and just to remind everyone, I do fairly detailed show notes so that everything Glenn has spoken about as a matter of software and all those links I will embed in the show notes. So please, if, you, if you're listening to this in a podcast player that doesn't support the links, just go to the website, and uh, which I'll mention at the very end, and you can look at the show notes and all the links will be clickable and you can explore it from there. And I do agree. Like, I think I was really excited about what Procreate did last fall in enabling the ability to paint on 3D. But for me, it was a bit of a, 
a tease. I haven't really played with it much. I spent way more time when I realized, you know, at some point there was that whole transition with Procreate where they had the beta going out and you could do stuff in Nomad Sculpt, but you had to send it through Forger to get it to Procreate. And that was complicated, but now that's all become much easier. I didn't realize how much fun it was to just create these wonderful animal-based fictional characters, these imaginative characters in Nomad Sculpt fairly quickly and fairly easily. And then seeing how you do it and informing me about, you know, how do I how do I create an eye? Do I do the eye socket first and then embed it or I just drop it in? And what's the advantage over one over the, like that kind of stuff has just been incredible. So I agree. Like, I think if you've got an iPad, maybe try Nomad Sculpt first. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. My, my so this is a good link for me to talk about my YouTube channel, and I'm not in any way selling it here. I'm trying to explain how I've moved as an educator and a, and a practitioner. So I was looking for a way to, I'd, I'd got 20 years in on ZBrush, so I was well embedded. I'd been making videos such the longest time. There's videos on online of mine just from forever ago. And bear in mind, I write every month for 3D World magazine, for Imagine FX, for Creative Block. You know, I've been creating this content for a long time. So there is always that stagnation that happens with an artist. You're doing the same thing and and, and you're always looking for the next thing. But I love teaching and I, and I love getting people to be able to do what I do. Now, prior to Nomad or even Forger and the iPad, I had to get people to, to start learning the basics of how to get in. You know, if you, if you put somebody in front of Maya and you train them for three days, by the end of three days, they know where all the tools are and they've got a sphere and they're... I can train somebody in an hour who's got no experience on an iPad and they're sculpting a dinosaur. And if you look at my Twitter feed, Southern GFX, you can see people who literally never, ever thought that they would ever sculpt anything and they've done full-on rendered dinosaurs because the tool is so accessible. You can use it at the dining table. So, you know, you use it in bed. It's, it's so there for you to, to, to learn and be using all the time. But I, I was after something to do. I mean, it came along at a time when I was looking for it, which is incredible. And I started with it before it was released, Nomad. Uh, and I was using Forger, which has been around for 10 years now, believe it or not. Um, and I wanted a way to, like, a, if I could say it in the terms of a gateway drug, I wanted to say to people, here's your how to get it. Go and get the big stuff. Go and get the job. Go and get, the in, get into the industry. And Blender wasn't cutting it for me. ZBrush is too expensive for a beginner. The learning curves for some of these are, are, are blockers and you have to invest time and, and money. So it came along at a time when I wanted to teach in a different way. And that's where my YouTube channel started. So we did, I've had a Vimeo for, and I've had a YouTube channel for years. I've never, ever looked after them until uh, 2020. And then we had a chat here internally and I said, right, I'm going to be, become a YouTuber. I'm going to I'm going to actually train people how to start this from nothing and become good at it in just in in one or two pieces of software. And that and that's what started it really. And it took off so well that we've got another company now that just makes training videos for that stuff. So that, that you know that that's that's what my future is going to be for people coming into the industry. If you just want to get going, then Nomad is is just super. And Nomad might be bought out, Nomad might change, but we've got it now. We've got we've got it proved that the industry can support a mobile sculpting solution. And obviously, you've you've mentioned it yourself with Procreate and now bringing in new tools. 
um, lots of people. We're going to get what what's called a retopology tool this month, which is a company that allows you to take those Nomad sculpts and, and put a new mesh inside it for animation. And that means that animation's only five minutes away. So, you know, I've been there so many uh, gr graphical revolutions that I know this is one. You know, I was there at the beginning of the VR ones. I was working for, uh, you know, uh, Oculus Medium at the time when they first started all the way back to ZBrush. Other ones in the middle, like uh, Never Center, a company made one called Silo, a modeling tool around 2007, eight. You know, these are things that excite me as, a, as, a, as an old artist. I've been around a long time in the digital world, but that still really gives me a real buzz that I can teach, you know, not not kids. I've got I've got 85 year olds literally doing the course who are just, you know, living their best life. It's just, oh, my God, I can now do all this and I don't need to go and move to L.A. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And I think. Like I've watched a bunch of your, I'm looking at your feed now and I'm seeing red lines under all of them mostly because I've watched every single one of them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's great because you talk about, you know, dealing with hair, um, dealing with uh, grass and, and, you know, alloy wheels and all this kind of stuff, which, you know, immediately when you start into it and, and you want to do a dinosaur and you want to create some feathers and it's like, oh, feathers? How do I do feathers? And so... Um, it can get really challenging, but it is so gratifying doing this uh, on the iPad. And I'm wondering, you know, if somebody's diving into this with Nomad Sculpt, what would you address as kind of their, what's the best frame of mind to start this? What are some common mistakes that people would make when they first start using or trying to do any kind of 3D work in Nomad? So there's a couple of things I always say at this point to, to, to that question. So one, I have to lower people's expectation about the output. So, and, and this is this is something I've said for years in whatever medium I'm teaching. So, y you may want to be uh, like me, um, and you may and you, and you can be in terms of using that tool as good as me within six months. It's not a problem. I've taught people at sixteen who are better than me in ZBrush at seventeen, and that is I'm not in an exaggerating that at all. But I've learned anatomy for all of my life. I've learned lighting all of my life. I've learned all of those basics um, and I'm always learning and still learning all the time. I know muscles because I've learned it. You can sculpt, but you're not a sculptor. You know, you can't have a brush pack that will make you be able to paint like James Gurney. You know, there there is no way that you can get a piece of software that will make you as as good as geo in sculpting or all of these industry leaders or Bay Ray or any of these people who are at the top of their game they've spent their you know you hear people say about 10,000 hours well let's try 20,000 hours for some of these guys they got 20 years under their belt in one subject um, some of them have got 40 years in a subject and 60 years in a subject so what you can't have is that you can't have you know your level of drawing you know, if you haven't done gesture drawing and done a thousand of them and done, you know, you can't have that. You you just can't get that until you've done those hours. But what you can have is you can have access to the tools that will allow you to get past the blocker of learning the tool. So with Nomad, you can get in. And if you watch some basic videos and not just mine, there's plenty out there now. If you watch the basics and uh, get past, you know, stage one, you can be creating 
in a much definitely leaner definitely faster in terms of learning it you can, in a week you can actually be turning out something you'd be proud of that you've never done and you can't do that with Maya and and, and even blender is you know you have to go through a lot of videos to to get there so I, and, and again I, I i'm not a person that that says anything without being able to back it up so you know my my facebook groups are all about people who have done that you know there's lots of examples of people so there's a there's a chap that spends a lot of time in our forums and runs some of the courses for me now called daniel torres i'll give you his link he's a great one to look at on instagram he had never touched 3d models he just wanted to make things to 3d print them and his work now you wouldn't be able to distinguish it from mine and that's in 18 months he's incredible i speak to him every day he's in groups with me and I use him as a great example, and I've, I've used I've, with his permission, obviously. Um, but I've shown his work and and how he's had all of this stuff in his head. Um, I mean, he's now learning how to draw in a moleskin. You know, he's, he's he's actually taken it and gone the opposite way. So he's put, you know, he's learning ZBrush now. He's come into the industry via an iPad, and that means tick for me. That means I've that, that is what I wanted really. And I, and I did that with VR as well. I've got you know a group of friends who are VR artists now. Who came in through VR and then learned the other tools, the ZBrush and all the others. So that you know, it can be frustrating for somebody uh, not getting where they want with art. And let me tell you, after all my years doing it, I still get frustrated. I still get depressed that I can't get what I want. I'm not as good as this person. I get anxiety when I look at Art Station and go, I you know, after all these years, I still can't do what they're all doing on page one. We have to get past that. That that is a problem that you'll always have, and it's it's always been there, and, and it's just now more visual. You have it more in your face. You you just have to benchmark a different way, um, and I always tell people you benchmark against how you were last week. Um, mm -hmm. You know, with with a goal in mind. Um, so yeah, there's, I have a lot to say on that, and I probably would. I'll shut up because we could take the whole <laughs> podcast on. On. I, I am a proponent of the basics are what matters. I don't care about the computer or the iPad. I care about do you know what perspective is? Do you know what lighting? Do you know what a three-point light rig is? Do you know how to? Do you know? Do you understand what ambient occlusion is in a pencil sketch? That's what matters. And those people that grasp that are the ones who fly with this stuff. You know, if, if you've already got that, you can transition an illustrator into an iPad in a day. And I'm not exaggerating, it's crazy. So can I ask you this? So I guess I have two questions. Maybe I'll start with this one. Is there, when we look at you, I mean, you talk about the online training as well, but if we're, people just want to kind of dip their foot into it, is there, once again, I'm putting you on the spot, is there a YouTube video of yours that would provide them kind of a, a hands-on overview of let's say creating um on the ipad with nomad sculpt there are lots there's, there's about 150 youtube videos of, of of varying natures um but on the youtube channel they're all bite-sized because obviously the very nature of the algorithm is that you can't go in to too much depth without damaging your your, your own stats so that's why we pulled um into a, a, a piece of software called Kajabi, which is an online platform. So our basics, beginners, and our courses are all within Kajabi, uh, which is a basically, you, you, you know, you can, I mean, they, they are paid for that. You know, I, I obviously don't want this to be an advert for me, mm -hmm. but we, we couldn't put what we wanted all on YouTube. We had to feed from YouTube to a place. 
So and my goal was always to be cheap. Uh, you know, we, you know, we've got courses that we, we, we said we're, we're looking at like 10 to $30. We, we're not looking at 300 400 right. And bearing in mind my ZBrush classes, we used to do a week for like $1,500, um, you know, which, which was seen as cheap in the industry. But I didn't want that market. That's not what I was doing it for. So you can go online and just if you just search Nomad Beginners now, there are a couple of people, me, me being one of them, but there's one called Small Robot Studios, um, and I think there's one called DM Art Glasses as well. They have all done uh, Nomad Beginners that will get you through um, day one, really. Um, if you want to invest 30 quid, then I, I have a full 10-hour video, you know, a 10-hour session of it. Awesome. But again, you know, I'm, you know, I couldn't do that on YouTube. YouTube is is bite size and if i could have done it i would have done it um because it would have got me you know more you know i would have been able to promote the channel more that way but it just our our thought process was we need to package it and give somebody a whole package so they can just take it away watch it it's all streaming stuff as well so i like i like this new world of you know i don't like having to download 10 gig of, of videos i like to just go in do my 30 minute lesson you know just stream it on another device or on your iphone or your phone while you're watching on your ipad and that's how we you know you've even there's even an app there if you look up the kajabi app you can watch all of my courses come through the app so yeah that that that's um that that's i'm going to tell you why i'm stuttering now because what you've just described is what we've just signed off today which is i'm actually going to do what are called um ultra beginners courses on youtube which is if you literally because we, we, we had some uh some feedback from only one or two people that even this beginners video isn't low enough for me i need i don't know the language that you're using i don't understand what a sphere is or a primitive is so i've i've said to to, to my teammate we're going to do some videos where it literally starts with I won't use a word unless I explain the word. So they're coming. If you want to watch my YouTube channel over the next few months, that's all coming. But that you know, I'm always looking for. I, I really listen to my feedback because it it, it really plays on my mind. So w somebody said to me, um, "I can't stand the noise of your iPad, your pencil on your screen." So it made me go and research rubber tips and things like that. So it really it really makes me think. Um, and, and I do. I, I love feedback like that, you know. I, I never get bad feedback, it's fantastic. I, th I think in in over a million views, you know, the feedback that's negative is usually about something like a bit of noise in the background or right. um, you, you, your introduction was uh, 28 seconds and really there should only be 10 and stuff like that, so, <laughs> which I can live with, you know. They've taken the dislike button away, so it doesn't matter. Now. <laughs> right. So I wanted to, like, you alluded to it in one of your students there where you suggested they they got an iPad and they came from a digital world and now they're drawing in a moleskin. So I wanted to talk about, uh, and you talked about James Gurney, who who was on the podcast, um, and he does a lot of, uh, like, analog maquettes. He builds, um, you know, th these these objects so you can see how the light falls and things like that. And that that's my intent in using Nomad Sculpt is to, when dealing with imaginative... Yeah characters and design being able to do that and then draw it on paper so i'm just wondering if you can speak to what if you're in analog world whether you're painting or drawing or whatever the case what have you seen as benefits for people who do uh, nomad sculpt and then come back to analog art what, 
do you think that is like they don't have to exist as separate paths? You can't cross over back and forth, and you feel there's qualities that feed from one to the other. Yes, uh, and I'm a big. Um, it's a really good subject, and I and I I I, I teach a course called um, Clay to Digital, and that's because when when I've worked on a couple of shows, I've I find there's a bit of tension between the sculpting team and the digital sculpting team if you work in what's called art department. So that that's when you're working on a show before it's made and you're making the sets or you're making you know you're working with a production team if you walk into that team and you're the digital sculptor and they're all analog straight away you're the threat so i was like this can't be right we don't need this i'm i'm a physical sculptor as well i know what that feels like so i came up with this idea to say right if you're a physical sculptor you know how to mold cast use clay use wax whatever um you've got this toolbox full of skills all you're doing now is you're bolting on the digital you're not changing, you're not becoming a digital sculptor. You're saying, in my arsenal of tools and in my showreel and in my, you know, what I've got to offer to a client, I've now got bolted on ZBrush. And you'll find some of the some of the best people in the world. If you look at Andre Blush, Blush, can't remember how you pronounce his name. If you look at, um, again, Geo Nakpil, these are the people who are working in ILM and working, you know, working with dreamworks you know they are good in both me they don't distinguish the mediums um and that's a good thing to do and i absolutely believe that you just use whatever tool is right for the job i don't i have i am software agnostic zbrush is probably the one that i'm most um loyal to one because i like the people and two because i've used it so long but i would change at the drop of a hat if the next tool came along if the right tool came along and i think what people should work out work out is um if you've never ever if you've only ever worked digitally and you go on a job and suddenly you've got to start grabbing textures from the real world or the job that you're doing requires you to be able to sketch a pig or a dog or understand a foot being able to do it digitally or um analog doesn't matter no one cares the the output is what people care the idea the ideation is what matters and i just think that you know you should try all of it you should definitely switch between i literally don't care what i make stuff in when i'm when i'm ideating i'll I'll do whatever you know add in vr now add in ipad add in you know pencil if you if you if you saw my room next door you you know i couldn't show you because i'd be embarrassed but it's got every tool that, that I, you know, a pencil, pen, ink, markers. I love still working with markers. You know, if you if you just say you're a digital artist, you will hit a wall at some point. If you say you're just an analog, you'll hit a wall. Because the world, if you go to an advertising agency and you can't handle digital, you won't get in. You know, they'll just, they'll buy some art off you, but they'll just scan it in and get someone else to edit it. The, the, you've got to make yourself as flexible as possible but not leave anything behind you know and the same with physical if you haven't if you're just a, a physical sculptor um sorry if you're just a digital sculptor and you've never tried physical then it's well worth just trying it it's obviously got both of them have got their limitations um you know if you if you work in stop motion i, I work for mckinnon and saunders a lot who are like the puppet makers of the world they are the best in the world bar none they're they're the ones that fed the team that became Leica. So, you know, Georgina um, Hayes is, is like, she worked in McKinnon and Saunders and became head of puppetry at Leica. She makes digital programs now, but actually her skill is all from, you know, all of it is about making it look like it's real. And all of it came from dressmaking and, you know, you know all of the craft stuff. Um, 
I might have got her name wrong. Then I'll have to I'll have to check that after the the podcast finishes. But but basically, it having both is where it's at, especially in this day and age where you've got to make yourself stand out. So, you know, we talked about desktop. We talked about iPad. Um, I got a quest, or uh, we got a quest for the family at the, over the holidays. A quest two, and because I know some artists who are working in that space and producing NFTs and Gravity Sketch, that was one of the first apps I installed. Can you speak to and you know, I, the first thing I had to do was bring in some of the stuff I did in Nomad Sculpt and look at it through VR. And it was like, oh, I just, I want to, I just love it. <laughs> so I wonder if yeah. you can speak to maybe um, the role of VR in maybe not just consuming what we're making elsewhere, but actually creating in something like Gravity Sketch. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. So, so I, I'm not a, I'm not a media consumer as such. I don't, I don't use my VR kit or any of my VR kits for any, I don't play games on VR. I don't I don't have an interest in. I'm so I'm so busy creating that for me I, I, I'm I'm just a creator, not a consumer. Although I, obviously I watch telly, <laughs> you know, I watch TV, you know. Um, but VR is it, it, I mean, it's uh, again I'm stuttering because I'm uh, I'm so passionate about VR, but it's not the be all and end all. Where where I see VR at the moment, or in uh, creating in an immersive environment, let's call it that. Is is incredibly liberating for for a sculptor like me to be in a room with what I'm creating, makes me a much better sculptor because I can walk around it, I can see inside it, I can see under it. So if you're working with things like um, Adobe Medium, which was Oculus Medium and soon to be Adobe Modeler, then you've got what's called a voxel system. So it's very very um, fluid and it, it, it's not like polygons as such it turns into polygons at the end but it's a grid system so it's more like minecraft um but you're pulling stuff into the air in front of you so if you're like me and you have to just make something you have to idea you have to make versions of something to show a director or somebody you have to show your ideas there is no better way at the minute it's fantastic whether it be an environment not not the finished product you can't do con you know you're not doing matte painting in there but if you need to show a valley that that's gonna you know you're gonna run down and then you're gonna meet a giant at the end of it you can put the director in the room with you and now with gravity sketch you can call him in you both go in together you can frame it up and tons of directors are using that kind of stuff at the minute that that that's a friend of mine mike yelniak worked on terminator made one of the ships in vr you know it's it's in there it's in the industry now Look at what they're doing with Mandalorian, and you know the way they're doing the wrap rounds with the scene. You know, it's it's going out to much wider wider uses now. But I mean, there is some limitations because the quest that you just talked about, if it's untethered, this is this is I have a quest behind me, and obviously we're not on video, but uh, the quest two can be tethered or untethered to a PC. So Gravity Sketch will work, and that means it's not it doesn't need a high end graphics card. So Gravity Sketch will work. Just plug it in, put it on your head, done. Whereas the other ones, the higher powered ones, they have to have a graphics card and you have to plug them into a PC. So that that can that's one of the reasons that the technology hasn't really hit the highest highs yet because it's quite. If you're coming into it, you, you've got quite a bit of expense. You got a PC, you got a graphics card, you got the headset itself, you got the hand controllers, and then pens. If you start going into the newer pens that you've got in VR now, so yeah, it's. Are, are you concerned about? You don't have to comment on this if you don't want to, but are you concerned about Facebook's um, pivot and their involvement, obviously, with Oculus as as their hardware, that it would have an impact? I mean, the reason I bring this up is I think that Facebook's had a negative impact on what Instagram 
could have been for creators in, in not supporting them and not helping them monetize. I worry a little bit about uh, whether their mission with Meta right now is consistent with what a creative would like out of the Oculus. And I'm just wondering if you're concerned about that at all. Not, not concerned at all, but I, I live on the creative I live on the disruptive end of creative tech. So I like problems in the industry because it breaks things up and what comes out of that is the good stuff. So I've I've always lived right at the bit where it's breaking and I always try and get in, learn learn what I need to do and and get out before it breaks and before, you know and I'm on and that's why I train people in Zebras because I'm not scared of anyone coming up and taking my work because I knew an iPad would come along or a VR. You know, I I've always known that and this is from my parents and the way I've always never, ever been afraid of change. And you learn that in business, you know, change management is actually a thing. You learn to evolve with change and embrace it. If you don't embrace it, you stagnate. Um, I've literally sculpted for Facebook live in their offices. I worked for uh, Oculus Medium and went to San Francisco, did lives over there. So I've got firsthand experience, never had a problem at all. But I do worry having got children and having, you know, been through that, you know, social media growing from, you know, when Facebook started, you know, 15 years now, whatever it is, there's a lot of problems coming with social media. And we see it in elections with blah, 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 all the other stuff that I'm not involved in at all. But from creativity, if they mess it up, someone's going to pick pick it up and run with it. The, the, you can't keep the creativity down. And and Mark Zuckerberg can't define what creativity is. He can't he 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 can call it meta and he can make a metaverse, but let's be honest, you know, as as Dr. Strange is going to tell us, there's many many metaverses and I always like saying that because Google will have a metaverse and Apple will have a metaverse and the BBC will have a metaverse later. You know, the, and I am exaggerating now, but the you will be able to switch to the metaverse that suits you. You don't want commercialized Facebook content, then you go somewhere else. You go to Reddit, you, you know, and there will be a Reddit universe, etc. And, and what I'm again, I am exaggerating, but what I'm saying is, I don't worry about what what they all say or what they do. If you know, ZBrush has just been bought out by Maxon. Maxon owns Cinema 4D. The industry was railing for a week. I don't care. I really don't care. I just think that those changes will either break it or make it. And and it doesn't matter. You ride that wave, whatever. If you're a creator who's learnt the basics, you should never fear software changing. And you should never, you know, everything that works well with NFTs um, is either well-marketed or, or well-made. And there's not much well-made. It's mostly just well-marketed or just, you know, someone who's learnt how to handle OpenSea or whatever to sell it you know and I've watched that for about three years now and I've got some talented friends in there I've got millionaire friends in there and I've got people who just can't get it they, you know me being included I don't have any NFT you know I've got one NFT and I, I don't I don't for me yet I, I haven't felt the need to dive into that because I'm too busy enjoying my creative life I don't need to be I don't want to spend any time not creating and NFT sometimes feels like that to me um, right. but, but but again, it's all noise. It, it, a lot of it is noise. Just focus on the basics is, is what I tell everybody. Forget the rest. Just focus on the basics. So that's cool. Um, yeah, I, I have a gaming PC and I've been playing uh, Half-Life Alex, which has been incredible. Um, it's just be able to act, interact with these environments is mind-blowing. Gravity Sketch, I haven't used the Adobe products. I could probably tether it and try that. So I will, I will definitely try that. 
Try Adobe, try Adobe Medium, and I'd suggest this to all your listeners as well. It's you know, it's I think it's still free. It's going to disappear at some point right. and become an Adobe product. But if you want to know, um, look at my videos. Actually, that's a, that is a good one. I've got you know, if, I think I'm number one on YouTube with with Adobe Medium. It's just a uh, another one that you can train in a day. It's, it's incredible. It's just it's, you know, you've got in your hands and you've got spray cream. And you just make something. That's cool. Insane. Uh, I will uh, for sure include a link directly to that video in the in the show notes. Now, I wanted to ask you something that I've explored as well, and that is, you talked about it. You know, this idea that you do something in the physical space and you bring it into the virtual world uh, or into the app. Let's not call it a virtual world, but you bring it into an app to work with. And so, this idea of using something like a, a current, uh, I mean, let's say an iPhone 12 or 13 Pro that has a lidar sensor in it, and using an app like Clone or something else. Uh, to use that LiDAR sensor to capture that physical element element, and be able to create like a .obj file or something from it and then bring that into Nomad or something else and work with it. What's your comment about that? Like how good are the phones at kind of capturing these, you know, where you may have somebody who's, let's say, visually impaired and is able to sculpt with her hands and, and do beautiful work and wants to bring that into a digital world and be able to do like a collaboration with somebody else. How good are the LiDAR sensors on phones now? It's very uh, subjective. The, so I, I like the LiDAR on the iPad. I like I like the photogrammetry on the phone. Um, and what they bring in from a texture point of view is very, very good. What they bring in from a geometry point of view is not so good as an as a, as an aggregate as an average. And I haven't tried every one of them. Um, obviously, I use them professionally. Um, if I need to capture something like a tree stump or a, a part of a road or a texture or something like that, they're perfect. I just take my iPad out to the woods. I just walk around. They are fantastic for what we call point clouds. So it just gives you where the geometry sits in a world. So if you've got to make an elephant and you can get an elephant to stand still and you scan it with your iPad, that will give you enough to build over the top of. So that is a viable way of doing it. I've done it with cars, done it with spaceships and, you know, scanned things that becomes the other things. Um, when you if you want to go to the next level and go professional, then you're talking photoreal. You know, you're talking scanners now that that pick up the hairs on your hands, so you have to actually smooth the hairs down because it's too good. And that's that's generally the photogrammetry on steroids. That's when you've got you know 250 DSLRs around a cage, and it just with one click it takes a picture from that area, and then that gives you all of the geometry and all of the texture. Those, um, if you look up 1024, that's one in the UK. That's that's a company that's probably one or first or second best in the UK. The stuff that they produce, the human digitals, are just completely realistic. If you put them on a film, they would be realistic. Um, so so there's a place for it. It's getting used more and more. Look at Unreal now. You know that you know they're almost realistic looking in a game engine. Um, and obviously, um, you know they, they just. They just bought wetter, didn't they? Some somebody somebody realised that having a movie production studio in a game company is just a good thing. So, my God, have those worlds smashed together? It reminds me of uh, back in the day. I was working in mechanical engineering, and we had a I don't remember what it was called at this point. It'll come up. It's but we we had to capture things like. Uh, human forms, uh, a chest, uh, a helmet, um, because we worked in in human uh, protection systems. And so we had a system that was a series of, I think it was five microphones, 
and there was a little pointer and you would click the pointer and it would calculate that point in 3D space based on the sound it would make. And so you had to be a quiet environment and you had to just go around and tap little dots around this. This is like, I I don't know, 90, I don't know, 92, 91. Um, Yeah. It was, it's amazing how how far we've come and I'm, I'm sure that the resolution would be less than a uh, an iphone doing the same thing at this point well go back even further and that, that's what i was describing about future world with, with 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 the hand that was in that film he drew a wireframe on his hand and he literally used a ruler to measure where those points were then coded them in so he coded a 3d model by literally using a ruler to the to the point so you know, we, you know, we, we are all on the shoulders of giants on every piece of software we've got. It's, people forget that. Um, what scanning now is, you know, it's it's another world. It's it's the, um, the there's Niantic on. Um, mm-hmm. So like, you look at the Pokemon games and, and look at, at that kind of technology now. So with augmented reality now, the next um, SDKs that are uh, the, the developer kits that are coming out, you can have a model that's occluded fully so you can basically have a creature that walks around my room here and walks behind chairs and behind tables so it's it's calculating and comp and, and compositing out those foreground things live so i mean that wasn't even heard of two years ago it was insane this we even think about it. so now it has it's ca- creatures on the floor walking around casting shadows walking behind furniture it's it's just um it's just incredible and then there that that's where nfts are going to go is like experiential stuff where you've got the ability to you know and where things like magic leap and or you know mixed reality that that that's where we all know that's where we're going vr will be a, a thing of the past very very soon once once you've got a mixed reality so if i'm sculpting on this desk in front of me with the glasses on and i just want to go into vr all you would have to do is wrap around put a put a close the walls down digitally you've got vr so if you've got a memo if you've got a mixed reality kit you would never need a vr kit again and that that they just need to to, to finalize that and get it a bit bit more um you know consumer friendly and that's done v- vr is is at that point becomes mixed reality which then smashes vr ar mr and all the stuff i do creating or smashes it all into one world and that's your metaverse because you you're then you know, you're all heading towards where does all this stuff go? So if it can either go in or out. You know, out in the real world is one thing. In is any of the metaverses. A metaverse is just a, a place to send stuff, really, is and do stuff. Right. Yeah, just a platform that houses the the assets, right? So and a marketing tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and just yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you know, that 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 is the that is the worry, isn't it? That that bit about you know, if you if you're with a company that's got something to sell that's what they're going to use it for every billboard's going to have their product every we get that now obviously with you know even down to television in the uk you know we've had adverts for 35 years on the telly we were okay with that now we're getting it on youtube every day we're getting on facebook we're getting it on every platform so when it's in the metaverse it's not going to be any different right one of the outputs that we have, and uh, another one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here, was just around 3D printing because it's it's one of those things that I've been thinking about for years, and it's like I don't really have a use case for building trinkets, printing characters, and putting them all over my desk. And I, I did a, some searching around Thingiverse and a few of the other pl- hosting platforms around 3D elements. I found some stuff that I just 
that were so specific to us, like a, a requirement. Like I, I have a little stand for my HomePod. I, I have a, a something to hold my pencils. I I can print a palette for painting. Um, it, there's so much out there now that you can do. And obviously one of the things you can do now is take these things that you create in Nomad or whatever and be able to export those as, as, as 3D printed elements. And 3D printers are fairly cheap. Um, there's obviously resin versus being able to use filaments. I, I'm just wondering if you can speak briefly to that in a way that informs somebody who may have no knowledge of what to do in this space. And maybe you could end it with, what do you think is a good starter printer? So, so you've you just mentioned the two main commercially available methods now. So you you've got resin, which is a vat of liquid, and it and it basically cures. So it, it the, uh, an ultraviolet light cures one level at a time. So it effectively pulls it out of the liquid. That's resin, as you mentioned. And the other one is fused deposit modeling, which is the one that that, that most people know, which is where you've got a big reel of of um, what's called PLA or ABS, which is it's basically a cornstarch plastic. It's it's quite a friendly plastic, generally speaking, um, and that gets extruded like toothpaste onto a onto a plate. So there are your two methods. The the FDM one is generally considered the starter one because that that's the easiest and cheapest and most friendly on your house because you you know one it's less power and two it's it's cleaner and it's obviously less expensive so you you go to resin for quality and finish surface finish you go to fdm for a little bit more solid because it's it's hard plastic fused when it when it's finished one of the big differences filament fused deposit modeling just heats the two layers together um whereas um uv curing cures the next layer onto the previous layer so it's a chemical bond as opposed to a heat seal so there is always that problem that you could you could fracture it you know the heat seal could could break at a later stage but i started in um, a MakerBot, which was you're probably talking 10 11 years ago i thought i bought my first one and everyone said that you know it won't catch on it's not useful but i learned everything on an fdm machine and i still have fdm machines now i still love them so you have to make a choice by doing a bit of research. If you're going to make tabletop miniatures, you probably need a resin. If you're going to make parts, you probably need FDM or filament. That's the, that's a good way of saying you know roughly where to go. If you want to make statues for, you know, if you want to become a sculptor like me, you're going to have to get resin because you won't get a surface. You won't get really clean um, surfaces around the eyes and the ears and. If you're making a dragon, you want little spikes. Well, you don't want to be... It has what's called support material, so both of them have supports, but it's easier to get it off of um, a, a resin one than it is off an FDM. And this, the next stage up from that is where you go to full-colour 3D printing with, with things like a Stratasys J750 or a Stratasys J55. They literally output your finished painted model, which is bonkers that's what you see on films like uh, Kubo and the Two Strings from Leica and all the way back to Coraline you can see where they started to use color um, or, or 3d printing and then color printing so there is that's that's the next level wow. so the last part of your question was what do I recommend so you can get for a couple of hundred dollars now you can get a, an Ender Pro which I know you have and I, and I have I still have one of those and there's about three or four different makes around that price bracket that'll cost you it's like $15 $20 for the reel of the, the filament 
and the machine is sometimes it's self-assembly but trust me i'm not techie with stuff like that and i've built two or three of them um, and you get them on, on Amazon for t you know 150 quid some days when they reduce them. So any of the Ender Pros, um, uh, e even still MakerBots out there, there's, there's, you can't really buy a terrible FDM machine. So you, you can if you go for really, really cheap. But if you stick around that 150 to $200 as a starter, you'll find a machine that you can learn on. And it's not a huge investment if you break it and blow it up or whatever. Um, it doesn't smell, which is good. So it's a better thing to start with if you've got if, you, if it's going to be in a, a home environment. You don't want the chemical smells that you get from resin sometimes. If you want to go to resin and you want to do tabletop miniatures or, or, or figures or something like that, the one that I always recommend to start is called an Elegoo Mars or a Mars Pro. And they're a couple of hundred quid as well, but they are resin. So you will be pouring, you will be needing gloves, you will be needing to wash the, the part off once it's finished. So you're going to need a vat of isopropyl alcohol. So if you've got a baby or a pet that's you know nosy, you know, you're not going to be mm -hmm. too happy with that. But if you've got a private room, if you've got a man or lady cave that you wanna you wanna you know you know put these printers in. Then, then you're fine. You know, go, go for a resin if you want that quality. And bear in mind the build size as well. So, the, these these cheaper, smaller printers don't give you a huge build volume. So you can't build a car out of it. You know, you, you need a bigger machine for that. Um, if you want to go up a bracket, I you know, there's something called a Form Form Two, Form Three, Form XL. That that's a company quite expensive. But they're the ones that you'll see in dentist laboratories now, and dentists, you know, play, wherever they're doing research on teeth, they'll, they use them a lot. I started my resin uh, life with one of those, and the one that I've favoured now, I've gone to one called a Piopoli Phenom. Um, it's a Chinese model. Um, it's huge. It's the size of a fridge, um, and I can churn out 400, you know, 400 millimeter pieces now. Um, which do take a fair while, and I'm sure it's a bit of a planet killer in terms of the you know the amount of electricity he uses. But you know that's an amazing. I've re recommended that to quite a lot of people in the last year, and I've not heard anybody you know complain. So I wanted to um, just talk about the teaching before we get into um, into the homework. But before we go into the teaching, I just had a question, just because we're two middle-aged white dudes. <laughs> I think we're probably about the same age. And I'm just wondering, I mean, uh, in my day job, equity, diversity, inclusion is 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 forefront of everyone's mind. In the industry that you're in right now, do you think that everyone is well represented? Do you think it's 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 open generally to a focus on your skills and abilities? I really do. Yeah, uh, I do. I, I talk a lot about this. Um I, I definitely, I mean, obviously I'm in the UK, so I can only speak to, I mean, I work worldwide, but I don't interact with teams that much worldwide. So I can't really say, you know, that far and wide in terms of diversity, but I'm finding certainly with the larger companies that I work with, that, that, that they put um, ethnicity, diversity and inclusion at the forefront that there's, you know, there's a lot of work being done in, in the UK with the government. Um, and I honestly, genuinely believe that if you have the skill, your um, ethnicity, your age, even, um, and and any you know if you're if you're any you know from the LGBT community, it really kind of doesn't matter. It's really not. I don't. I don't see. Um, I certainly have never experienced any racism. I've certainly never seen anyone. Not in this. Not not in. The creativity side of things, you know, I, I have experienced it in in on the the peripheries of that, 
Um, so in media and TV and film, that you know, I have seen some certainly where uh, uh, women have been held back, certainly in the higher, uh, you know, higher echelons, and, and definitely a paid discrepancy. But as a creator, as someone who does what I do for a living, and people who still make stuff, um, you get hired. It's not even that much about your education standard as well. That you know, you know, everybody knows having a degree is statistically gives you more of an earning potential later in life. But if you can find your education, whichever way you find it, a lot of us are self-trained, like me. A lot of people of my age are came to it in, in lots of different routes. You know, the, the, the education system wasn't geared for what we want to do. You would have ended up as a graphic designer in print or something like that if you'd have stuck with what was available. I have a really, really wide, diverse network of people that work around me and with me, and I'm always really quite proud of it, to be honest with you, not not, not just, just me and mine, but I see a lot of, of diversity every single day. So I work with teams, you know, I'm working with a team at the minute with represent, you know, representatives from all over the world, literally all over the world, and from every gender and denomination, and it doesn't actually come up um, now, now, obviously, I'm speaking from a, uh, you know, you know, I, I, I'm as you've said, I, I'm white. I'm potentially what we would call white privileged, because I, you know, I'm from a working class background in Northern England, um, but I am, you know, I, I, I haven't experienced racism, and it was a very ethnically insular world that I lived in. You know, I, you know, there were there were no people of diversity in my community at all. But again, I went out into the wider world and I learnt my craft in London and in um, all, you know, lots of cities in the north of England. And you have to be able to fit in with a diverse community, in, in certainly in northern England, because we're so diverse. You know, and London, you know, London is the most, uh, I don't know, but I guess it's the most diverse city in the world. So if you're carrying any hang-ups and you're, you know, if you're trying to interview in London and you have hang-ups, you're going to struggle. You know, you definitely are going to struggle. Um, there are still pockets. There's still problems. There's still, you know, definitely. The, I think the female male pay gap is is annoying. Um, you know, my, my, as I said to you at the start of the podcast, my wife's a HR exec, so I, I hear it firsthand every day. So there are still some biases. There are still some in our industry. You will find some skews, um, but yeah, I, I'd like to. I'm quite proud of it, really. I mean, th- th- there's there's some groups of um, people fighting for more um uh more awareness of uh you know the male and female split is not right in some parts of it but it i think it has definitely got better again i'm probably not the right person to ask because i'm on the i'm on the enemy's side just you know the, the, the white middle-aged guy so well, i'm soon to be a white old guy so it you know, kind of <laughs> won't matter at that. well i just i wanted to ask that because i think if i wanted people if there's somebody listening who is concerned about that just hearing that this is is um this is your view on it is, is I think encouraging because I, I do feel, and it's not just about uh, race and gender. I mean, you brought up age as well. I've experienced ageism. I'm 54 and I've run into it just recently. Just um, like it's, people will find a way to exclude us. And I think we just, I mean, I'm, I'm so glad to hear um, what you said and, and the fact that you've got a, such a diverse team as well. So I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I th- you've got to work at it because, it, you know, especially, especially with um, ethnicity, it's, you know, you, you know if, you, if, you, 
if you don't go out there and make uh, certain communities understand that they can do what you do, then they, they won't come forward because they'll feel like it's a closed shop. You know, and I, I, I take pride in the fact that that doesn't happen around me and it doesn't happen when I'm recruiting. What, what happens a lot is you can't find the skill level, so you have to take what the person with the skill level. You might have a, a, you know, in the larger companies, they'll have an ethnicity quota, which some people, you know, disagree with, but, you know, they're trying to, to make the teams more diverse. But sometimes there isn't enough people, especially now post-COVID, there are more jobs than people. So, it, you know, that, that will, I'm pretty sure in a lot of industries that will skew the figures over the next year. It's wrong to say I don't worry about it because that means that, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't like I'm all right, Jack, kind of thing. I don't, you know, I wouldn't want it to come across like that. It's just that I, I don't. The people that I move around are not like that. They, they generally are quite open to if you can do the job. Um, what I would say is you need a. If there's anyone very young thinking about it, you need a basic level of education. That that's what matters. Not necessarily a degree or a or a, a qualification of a certain level, but you need to be able to communicate and intelligence and academia brings in communication. So if you can learn to be with a team and communicate your ideas and take feedback without getting aggressive and angry and, and sad when they tell you your work is rubbish, which happens to me all the time, you know, you, you've got to learn those social skills. Um, and that's not particularly any kind of you know and that's not a problem for any ethnic group that's everybody you know if you if you are if you are at an academic level where you're you don't understand how important it is to be able to read a paper or read a, 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 how to research what the new stuff is then you're going to struggle because you're going to be left behind you know if you, all you can do is watch videos so so a basic level of education is paramount but it's not completely limiting you know i i i had a lot of time working with people with dyslexia um, and, and you know a lot of people a lot of high powered people that I work with are, are dyslexic and living with it like it's literally nothing so it you know that's changed a lot you know when I was a lot younger dyslexia was quite limiting um, but there's so many ways to find ways around things now you know and and I find with, with the creative industry there's a lot of um, odd people and, and I include myself with that I, I'm an odd person with my my likes and what I do and you know I don't like sport that much so I'm seen as odd in my community sometimes um, but the creative industry embraces the the different if there's if there's such a thing anymore and that is one thing I do I do like about gender diversity now is that that our community is one of the the ones where you would see nobody really cares you know if you can do it you can you just get on and be whoever you are and artists have always been out there They've right. always been leaders in that. Definitely, have been leaders in that. And I, I love the world I live in. As much as I dislike the social media danger, I love the diversity that that, that we're getting. And I've still got a lot to learn. I've still, you know, I, I, I still make mistakes. I, you know, but I like to think that you know, you know, part of it is learning it and getting on with it. You know. So I just we'll just touch briefly on 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 that and the education component, and then we'll go into homework. Because um, I want like you do a lot of training. Like you've got the YouTube videos you've got your courses uh, you've got in-person stuff that you've done and i love the fact that you say that you're always learning i think for a teacher to accept and, and and live by that is important what do you feel that training has taught you that you've been able to then fold into your day job like what do you think the advantage has been and i'm trying to 
ask this question in a way that if there's an artist listening and they feel they're decent at something, that maybe they should learn to teach it. And I'm just, that's the angle I'm coming at it. So I'm wondering what, what has taught you being an educator and applying that to your day job. So, so to, to be an educator need, needs one thing, really. Somebody told me this a long time ago, and it's really stuck with me. So, so again, the, the, the qualification is not needed until it's needed. So there are certain things that you've got to teach that you've got to have the paper for. Um, I've just done an MA because of that reason. I need to teach other MAs, and I, 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 I need, if I want to go in-house at a university, I needed that MA. We, and I'm not academic, as I've said many, many times, but I saw a need for it, therefore I went and got it, um, and it was bloody hard. Um, Congrats. But <laughs> very much so. I've not, I haven't actually got the, uh, you know, I've, I've submitted my last bit, but I haven't, I haven't actually got the, I haven't got my hat ready yet. <laughs> Um, but you just need to be one chapter ahead of the person you're teaching, and that, that's the way somebody told it to me once. So when I'm teaching something, I quite often don't know it all. You know, I have my set of skills. I have my ability to talk to people and, and, and hold a, you know, a face-to-face and actually impart the knowledge, but I just know that one bit more, um, and sometimes that's all it needs. It just needs for you to be a little bit further down the line than the other person, and at the following week, that person may well be teaching you. And the minute you accept that that's a norm, you improve massively both as a practitioner and as an educator because you cannot know it all. You have to accept that at some point in the room will be someone better than you. Um, And the minute you relax into that and you actually frame your day as, look, you guys might know this, but this is how I teach it. You know, it doesn't happen often, but it's quite refreshing when it does. And, and, And what you learn... Again, what I think I've learned is on that day when I meet that person, I roll them into the teaching and make them feel included because I say, you help me. And I and I reference them through the day. So I buy them in as a higher level than, than, than the room. And therefore, you're doing social engineering. You're you're getting the buy-in of someone who can help you do your job. You're, you're actually and making them feel valued in, 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 a, in a, a really valid way, not in a, in a sycophantic way or anything like that. So that's they're the skills I was talking about that I've learned. It, you know, it's not manipulation; it's social engineering, if you want to term it like that. It's 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 making people do what you want them to do or learn, but they actually want to do it. So that's not it's, it's, if we if we talk it as basic as carrot and stick. There's no stick. It's just I've got something here. If you want it, uh, you know, co- co- come and learn it this way. So obviously, I'm still learning to teach obviously a part of my year is going into universities and I, and as I say I teach in subjects that weren't even didn't even exist five years ago so I've just worked at Liverpool um, John Moore's University a very famous university in Liverpool here and I've taught um, virtual reality sculpting to master's students and then they needed some 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 3d skills and I taught blender which isn't my it isn't my home software but I can quite comfortably teach it. And one person in the room was very confident with Blender, but didn't know all the other stuff. So again, I rolled them into the, you know, help me motivate and explain and occasionally got them to explain something. So learning learning that and being confident in, in yourself is, you know, for teaching is, you know, if, if you make people nervous when you're in front of them, then you're not going to do very well. You've, you've got to learn to relax into it, to make people... You have to do what's called learning their learning style. You have to understand how everyone is different. Some of them need you to to show them physically. You need to go to their desk and point to them. Some of them just need a pointer and you know wind them up and go. Some people need to be um, you know cuddled. Some people need to be you, you know actually you know you have to really look after them. Yeah, and that, and doing 
again, I'm, I'm using a lot of speak that I've learned over the last 10 or 15 years. You know, when you walk into a room, something that I do is I do what's called a training needs analysis, which is I look around the room, I ask certain questions, and I judge the person's current ability without ever asking what's your current ability. And that's, and that's a great thing because then at that point you can decide, right, of these 10 people, I've got two really, really needy people down here who aren't at the right level. Um, but I've got people here who, who can be given something really quickly and they can go off and do it and feel motivated by me just saying, let's look at your work and review your work rather than other people who don't have any work. So those kind of skills are what you learn as you learn to teach. Um, and that rolls into your own work because you get better, you know, you learn from them as well. Some, some of them are better practitioners than you in, in some things. Um, that happens to me a lot. That's really helpful. I think everything that you said is going to really uh, resonate with the person who's considering teaching. And I really like the idea that you just need to be one chapter ahead. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, it's a good one. That. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Stuck with me a long time, that. Because it, it takes the fear away. Yeah, exactly. I always like to have an actionable item with the listener, something that they could take away from this and uh, work on something with mindful of our conversation still happening in their head. So I'm just wondering, as a matter of uh, homework, Glenn, that you would have for somebody, what would you uh, suggest? So we, I had to think about this when you asked me about this. So we, we, do, um, we do weekly challenges on my Facebook groups. Um, and we, so we have a challenge every week. We used to do it every day. Um, and, and I still like to do it every day, but there's just you know too, too much going on. So so we did a challenge recently that I want to roll into into your podcast. So you, you will have seen over the years people like do learning anatomy and and and, and becoming um, you know t- taking their time to learn like a skeleton, for example, or a muscle uh, design. But one thing that we did recently was, um, and I've seen it many times over the years, is 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 to take a character that you know. So try and think of it more as a cartoon or something that's a little bit out there, a little bit, not just a, you know, a human. So it could be a dog. It could be a cartoon dog and actually go and prepare the anatomy for that character, either draw it, sculpt it or work over the top. So um, we we had a really good couple of weeks with this. It rolled into two weeks because everyone was so, so passionate about doing, you know, the skeleton in their dinosaur or Somebody did Dastardly and Mutley. Um, I did, um, one of the ones I did was Thanos, um, but as a crocodile and the anatomy. So so you can literally take this as far as you want, but choose choose probably just the skeleton if you're, if you're not, you know, if you're new at this. If you want to sculpt it, a skeleton's a great thing to start with because you can get away with just some very basic shapes. If you want to draw it, then you can go crazy. And if you look online, there's lots of examples of, of people doing Mickey Mouse, you know, the skeleton in there. And, and it's also good to do things that don't even exist. So we do a lot of fantasy mashups. So, for example, if you were to put a skeleton in a snail, how would that work? Obviously, they don't have skeletons, but imagine that it does. Um, or if you've done a cartoon um, uh, dragon, then, you know, go crazy and, you know, put a full dinosaur style anatomy with the wings learn the wings so yeah i'd love to see i'd love to see that really um and and see uh, you know pick your pick a character that you are close to or you know uh, somebody did calvin and Hobbes, which i thought was amazing so a tiger and a little boy um yeah um and then in whatever medium suits you so 2d 3d vr whatever just just have an explore of the anatomy for that character i 
I've not, I've, I think I've seen this, but I've not absorbed it as being something I can do. I'm, when you first said that, I'm thinking Shrek, I'm thinking Toothless. I, uh... yeah, yeah, you go nuts, don't you? As soon as, <laughs> yeah, we, we, it was one of the best, cha- we've been doing challenges for about three years and, and I actually went, oh my God, I haven't, I haven't felt this way about a challenge in ages. So I just thought it would be a good one to bring to the table for you. That's that's great. I uh, I know a lot of people would be excited about this and choosing their character and and uh, as you say, like even even weaving a couple together, like you did with Thanos and a, and a crocodile or an alligator. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's open, but but it's actually more challenging than you think if you don't know anatomy. So it's a good way, it's a good time to go and have a look at a skeleton. And if you're good enough, do muscles. I mean, that would be amazing. Um, and it's good if you're gonna, you know, whether whether you do it in 2D or 3D, you can do layers. So you, you yeah. so you you could easily do comps over the top. Um, uh, but yeah, go for it. That that will be interesting to see where that goes. I love that. So if if you're listening and you decide to take this on, post it. You can share it on Instagram. You can tag myself and Glenn, and uh, and we'll share. It. It'd be lovely to to see some of these uh, creations. I think that's brilliant. Absolutely. So. Um, Glenn, before I, I ask where people can find you, do you have anything uh, coming up in the next uh, few months, the next year? Uh, you talked about those additional courses coming. Is there anything else that you want to plug or, or talk about that you have coming up? Yeah, there's loads, really. So uh, in terms of events, we've got Vertex coming up, which is in the UK, in London. It's uh, run by Future Publishing, so I'll be presenting. It's a virtual one this year because uh, before we go back to physicals. That's in the end of March. Uh, and obviously I write for, for those magazines, anything with future publishing. Um, I, I'm in there every week. So by all means, you know, if you drop, drop and say hi, if you spot any. Uh, we got the cover last month with a, a mobile, a sculpt of an alien, which has never been done before. We've never got a mo- anything done on, a, on an iPad on the front cover of a 3D magazine wow. and creative block. So that was a big that was a big uh, plus for me um, getting that. So. Um, and then go rolling on into the year there's there's quite a few events that are starting to come back like THU is a big one that I always like I don't get to it every year that's Trojan Horse was a unicorn over in Portugal um, that's a great a great one I'd love to get to that this year if if it's on and then in terms of us what we've got on so I'm, I'm heavily into a project at the moment which obviously I said I can't talk about um, but during so as that's finishing we've got several new courses coming on so one of the things we're going to do is we're going to start doing lives on the YouTube with hour-long sessions of learning. Um, so I'm going to take, I'm going to do something called YouTube for you, um, and and that's going to be ZBrush for the rest of us as well. It's going to be called, which is if you've never touched ZBrush, you're going to be able to follow along in the in the lives. So just follow um, on YouTube. It's Southern GFX. So it's the word Southern and then Golf Foxtrot X-Ray. So Southern GFX is my company name and i'm on all social media under that name so whether it be if you go on facebook you can find all of our different groups if you go on twitter i'm on there instagram also than gfx um now my courses are all um the, the the courses that we're doing next are um quite interesting actually so last year we, we worked on a project for nomon school of visual effects and we did the first gravity sketch course for them so they've got um, as part of their their monthly fee. One of the videos you get in there was a full course on Gravity Sketch, which is one of my babies. Um, now we've left it a while. We've left it a year, so we don't conflict with them. So we're introducing our own Gravity Sketch course. That's that should be out before spring. Um, so that's coming on our Southern GFX Creative courses, which I'm sure you can link. Um, mm-hmm. 
And then in terms of the nomad courses, so the next nomad course is going to be environments uh, for we're going to we, we basically put some videos on Twitter about doing like a whole garden, uh, like with mushrooms and grass and all of the, the, the one area we haven't covered. And the feedback was such that we made a course out of it. So we've got that one. Then another creature course to follow up the dinosaur course. Um, and then we go into masterclasses with Nomad. So then we've we've got enough then because we've got a beginner's course and we've got a um, a robot course, which is R2-D2 actually. We've got the dinosaur, which so that's hard surface was the robot. The dinosaur one was the 101 for creature design, how to block out creatures. Then it rolls into, then we did one for tattoo artists. So how to use Nomad to paint your ideas for your tattoos. Mm. So that that went really well. Then we've actually got a YouTube one as well on there, which is about, we've got a soft launch already, so how to actually do what we've done with the YouTube channel. Um, so so that's in there. So we've got tons of tons and tons of the training coming along. Um, and because COVID's finishing in terms of the, the impact, you know, we, we're dropping the masks soon in the UK. The year is, I'm keeping it quite flexible because we, we don't know yet what we can and can't do. So I, I, I spend about a, maybe a fifth of my year traveling um, and I go all over the world wherever I can get work with Wacom and the companies I work with. I'm a Wacom evangelist, so or ambassador as they call it. So I, I go worldwide for for them. Um, and companies like 3D Connections, I work with them, and Logitech for the their equipment. So I've got lots of lots of you know and Lenovo and all all sorts of deals where I literally go out and promote what we do. That's awesome. So much on your plate. So I really appreciate you coming on uh, to the podcast. I, you know, I reached out to you on a few things and I always thought it was so funny because you, you know, I was reaching out to you because of the 3D and the Nomad Sculpt and your comments were, you know, I, I have to, you know, get in touch with a guy who, do, who draws mushrooms or with mushroom ink. And then I, you know, I'll use the Graph Gear 1000. And so it was, you came back with analog kind of like, I love your analog stuff. And uh, I just thought that was great. And it was it was it was such a it's just horses for court whatever works yeah yeah and i think it's this has been such an enlightening conversation around kind of the digital component which i i don't touch on a lot through in the podcast but i think there's a huge value to those people who are interested in the 3d world working with 2d elements um moving into animation that this podcast is for everyone who's inspired by some sort of drawing and creating and i do appreciate your time so much and be able to talk all about this being able to provide some concise kind of directions that people can take with it and uh i'm so excited to to dive even deeper into some of your work so thank you glenn so much for your time no worries really enjoyed it it's been a, it's been a nice couple of hours actually i think that's awesome time flies <laughs> isn't it it does fly. So thank you so much and uh, take care of yourself. We'll see you online. You have a lovely day. You too. See you later. Okay, bye. Show notes, including links to everything Glenn and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 73. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other and keep drawing. The music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. 